As I was preparing this week for this sermon and reading through the text that I'm going to cover this morning, um, I began to think about how much we as Christians should be able to give thanks to God for. We have God's eternal blessing resting upon us because of Christ. And it's good to know that because we live in a a world that wants to uh, distract us. We we live in a world that is sin-cursed, not God-blessed. We live in a world full of broken relationships, a world full of financial struggles, a world full of physical pain. And at times, all of us, even Christians, feel overwhelmed by these kinds of issues in life. The reality is, is as I read the text that we're going to cover and the time period in which it took place, and I begin to think about all the details of what was going on in the man's life in Mark 2, I begin to really think about how intense this would have been in this narrative for this man to be carried to Jesus by his friends. Life for this man was hard. Life is hard in this sin-cursed and broken world, even for believers. Reconciling broken relationships at times in this life can seem almost impossible. Providing financial security for our families can seem to be an endless pursuit. Living with illness and physical pain can feel like we're fighting an unstoppable enemy in this life. And all of these issues in life can at times seem paralyzing to us. But we know that God can and, as I said, often does grant us many things in this life that we don't deserve in temporal blessings. At times he grants us healing in our relationships. At times he grants us financial security. And at times he even heals us physically. And when that happens, we as his people should, and and I think we do want to give God praise for these gracious temporal blessings. But those blessings are just that. They are temporal. Pain and suffering in this life will return because this is a sin-cursed world. We have bodies that were well-trained in sin and affected by sin now until we get a new body in glory. And sometimes if we we dwell on the fact that pain and suffering is still coming to us eventually, it can even paralyze us in our duty as Christians. It can paralyze our hearts to the point that it leads us to discouragement and even depression. So this morning, what I want to do in Mark 2, in this narrative, is I want to help you look past the paralyzing temporal issues of life, and look to your eternal blessings in Christ. I want to do that because I think that God's eternal blessings in Christ are granted to us to to know them in his word, to bring us comfort when our hearts feel paralyzed by the suffering around us. When we stop and think about how God has blessed us with his, his grace, we recognize that we didn't do this on our own. We didn't earn this on our own. He granted it to us in life. He granted us all the blessings. We didn't deserve them. We didn't earn them. 
All of those come from him. And it's actually impossible for us as sinners to earn God's blessing in life, even as Christians. He brings them all to us through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus does what is impossible for us. He makes it possible through his life. He alone grants us the eternal blessings of reconciliation with God. He alone grants us not just financial security at times, but eternal security with God. And Jesus alone gives us the hope that we have that one day physical pain will cease. We'll have a new body. He made that possible. We didn't earn that. We didn't deserve that. That is the eternal blessings that come through his perfection, his substitutionary work on this earth. These eternal blessings are really, as I said, truly impossible for man to obtain on our own. We are truly paralyzed by our sin, just like the man was physically paralyzed in this narrative. The man who was carried to Jesus by his friends. And what we learn in reading this is is Mark's helping us see that even for those who are paralyzed by sin, there is hope. When we come to Christ. Because Jesus makes the impossible possible. Let's look at the text here in Mark 2, beginning in verse 1 down to verse 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there were there was no room, no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What a great surprise for the paralytic. He comes for healing. He had no idea he was also going to get forgiveness. But look at the next verse. It describes those who were there in the midst of this great miracle. Verse 6 says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning. You could also write judging in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. 
The all spoken of there in verse 12 does not include the scribes. These are the people who came out, followed Jesus to this place, and would follow him after this. This does not include the scribes. Here in this text, Jesus reveals, again, what I said earlier, that which is impossible for man is made possible by him. In verses 6 to 12 is what we'll look at today. Jesus reveals three things here, okay? Jesus reveals three things through this text to us. This text reveals to us, number one, an unbelievable question, an unbelieving question, actually, but an unbelievable question that reveals man's religious inability to see Jesus for who he is. Secondly, the text reveals to us an unmistakable revelation It reveals to us an unmistakable revelation about Christ's authority and his mercy. And thirdly, the text reveals to us an undeniable reaction that reveals Christ's testimony to those who observe this. Let's look at the first part here in verses 6 and 7 where we, we hear the scribes ask an unbelievable question that was hidden in their prideful hearts. They thought that only themselves knew this. Yet we see something different happening here. Verse 6 says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, in their soul. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The last question is a good question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? No one. But notice this question before that. It's not a question of doubt. It's not a question of, could this, could he, he might be blaspheming. I'm not sure. Now, this is a statement of fact. He is blaspheming. This is an unbelieving question. It's an unbelievable question in light of what's happening here. This unbelievable question tells Christ what's really going on in the hearts of these unbelieving theologians. Now, these are theologians, folks. They're identified as the scribes. The scribes were the teachers of the law. They were laymen who were devoted to keeping the people of Israel loyal to the Old Testament law. And the traditions. And what they did was they tried desperately at the beginning, even as the Pharisees tried to do this, to protect the law of God from being forgotten. But the way they did that was they they superseded the law by adding more traditions to expand the law through their commentaries. They had no desire to look for the one who was speaking to them. They were there to criticize this man. There was no belief in their hearts. They had the word, as theologians, they had the word. Theologians were men who studied God, right? They knew it technically. They knew it verbatim. They could quote it, but they didn't know him. The scribes here should remind us of something very important. They should remind us that it takes more than head knowledge about who Jesus is to be saved. In, In true salvation... Faith, that is trust, 
in God's word of promise must be present. And we know that according to Scripture, Ephesians 2, 8 tells us, 2, 8 and 9 tells us, that faith is a gift that only God can grant. Religious knowledge is insufficient. Just having the traditions, just having the Word of God in front of you, reading it without faith, it is insufficient to save. It is Christ who saves by God's grace. We know it's It takes more than just religious knowledge to save. Look with me at Galatians to see this. Galatians 3, Galatians 3, verse 1. Look what Paul writes to the Galatians who were being infiltrated by these Judaizers. And listen, the Judaizers had almost everything right except one thing. They had no faith in Christ. It was Jesus plus works to secure you, to sanctify you. They were so close, but yet so far away because they did not trust in Christ alone. And so this influence in the church at Galatia caused Paul to write something very harsh here in Galatians 3, 1. He says, oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed, trusted God, And it was imputed or counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify, declare right the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Notice verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is declared right before God, justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. We don't see that happening in Mark chapter 2 with the scribes. Their religious pride had blinded them from actually trusting in the written revelation before them and the incarnate revelation of God in their midst. Mark verses 6 and 7 reveals to us, I think, much about the danger of religious pride when you think about it in its context. Notice this. Who is preaching? The incarnate word of God. These men, the scribes, said they love God's word, but the incarnate word of God is before them. Yet they are hardened in their hearts against him. This reveals to me and to you, I think, this morning, that even those who sit under the preaching of God's word and the word himself can still walk away indifferent and rebellious to it. We notice that here 
in this narrative, just in the way these men act and interact in this whole story. Look, I mean, the paralytic, this, this man who is suffering immensely in this life, miserably in this life, he is, he is being lowered into this, this area where they're sitting. And there is no sympathy in these men for the paralytic at all. As he's, as he's being lowered down, where are these men at in the narrative? They're up front. They're sitting in the place of honor. When you read the narrative, you find that there are a whole lot of people outside. That's why the paralytic couldn't get in. All the sick and the weary and the hurting couldn't get in, but the scribes got in. They set themselves up in the place of honor. They're there. Notice this, too, when you you read the account. As the man's being lowered down, and Jesus, Jesus is going to declare him forgiven and cause him to rise and walk. But as he's being lowered down, they see this, this infirmed man, this weak man, this hurting man, and this desperate act of love by these other men lowering him into this setting. Do any of the scribes reach up and help him down? Do any of those men extend grace to this man? Now, what do they do? They sit there questioning Jesus, the healer and the creator of all things. The scribes teach us that a heart of unbelief is identified by pride. Pride and self-righteousness. Self-righteous pride can sit under the very word of God and still be unresponsive to it and unbelieving in it truly hope that's not the case today with any of you. If it is, I want to call you to do what Isaiah said we can do in Isaiah 66. He says that we, with a contrite heart and a humble heart, can cry out in faith now to Christ for mercy. Cry out to God for mercy. He will hear those who simply recognize their sins and call upon Him in faith to say, I am unbelieving. I am rebellious. I am in sin. I am not who I ought to be. By, by, by your grace, save me. And he will hear. And he will answer. As he draws you through the revelation of his son. Even now. You're here this morning sovereignly. God brought each and every soul here this morning to hear this very revelation of who Jesus Christ is so that you can rejoice and repent whether you're a Christian or whether you're an unbeliever. You're here to hear the revelation of Christ so that your hearts would not be unresponsive to his work, to his eternal blessings that he's granted you, even now in this world of suffering. Sometimes we let the suffering overshadow the blessings. He wants us to be reminded, I think, through this text that this suffering man, he was overshadowed with immense pain, but there were blessings to come as he responded to Christ, as Christ enlivened him, gave him life, he rose up and followed what Christ said. Mark tells us that this is very important to know. That's why it's written here. It's important to know. Look at the text again. Mark 2, 6 and 7. Because people can, and obviously people did, set at the very feet of Jesus and hear him speak. And they did not repent. They sat under the very words of Christ and they did not tremble in awe in his presence, nor did they repent of their sinfulness. 
This pride caused them simply to question, judge him, whether he was truly who he says he is, and to say that he is a blasphemer. Rather than rejoicing over this man's healing and the Savior's teaching, these men questioned in their hearts who he was. Just think of the hardness of their hearts. A man who is separated from God, a sinner, being declared by Christ that he is forgiven, and then being physically healed by the words of Christ. And these men are not moved to rejoicing. They're questioning. They questioned, they didn't rejoice, I believe, because they knew what Jesus was saying. And they didn't like it. They knew that Jesus was claiming to do only what God could do. That was to forgive sins, to forgive sinners. But in their intellectual and religious pride, their eyes were blinded. They chose to be blinded because Jesus threatened their existence. See, Jesus is expressing his authority in this text. He forgave. He caused the man to rise up and walk. Their authority was about to be wiped out. They did not like that. They didn't like it because they knew that that's what the Messiah would actually do when he came. Look with me at Jeremiah 23, verse 1. The scribes were in many senses acting as the shepherds of Israel at this time when we read the Gospel of Mark. So this would apply to them. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning shepherds, the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. Notice verse 4. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Notice verse 5 in particular. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Oh, the scribes knew this verse. They knew this verse. If anything, they trembled at it was this. They didn't want this. They didn't tremble at his greatness and his mercy. They trembled because their existence was threatened by his presence. They simply didn't want Jesus to reign over them. They didn't want to lose their reign as leaders either. They knew that if Jesus could and did forgive sins, that he could certainly be this Messiah that's spoken of here. And theologically, as scholars, they knew that only God himself could forgive sins because all sins that are committed are committed against him. See, I can't forgive your sins against God. I can forgive Kobe's sins against me. He doesn't sin against me. But if if that happened, I could forgive that. 
But I can't forgive Kobe for the sins he's committed against God. Who can do that? Only God. It is God who has been offended. It is God who can grant forgiveness. And they knew this. Okay? They knew that only God could remove the guilt of sin and declare a sinner to be absolutely forgiven. And that meant that they also knew that Jesus was either God incarnate or a blasphemer. Well, they chose the latter. If he could forgive sins against God, he had to be God. And that would make him their master. But it says they reasoned in their hearts that he cannot be their master. He must be a deceiver. He must be a liar, a blasphemer. Now, when they do this, Jesus actually has them right where he wants them in verse 8. Let me go back there with you. When they begin to do this in their hearts, he actually has them exactly where he wants them. He's going to reveal something to them about their unbelievable question through his unmistakable revelation here. Secondly, in 8 to 12a, we hear Christ's response to their question. We hear an unmistakable revelation of who Christ is and what Christ alone can do. Let's begin with verse 8. Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? (laughs) Do you know what's happening here? These, These men were saying, he can't be God. He can't have authority over us. And what does he do ironically here? He displays his very authority to them personally by revealing what is inside their minds, their hearts, their soul. I mean, What a shocker to these judgmental men. Wouldn't that be just astounding? You're sitting there with Christ. He's preaching and you're going, I think that guy's a fraud. But you don't say it. You're just thinking it. And then all of a sudden he says, hey, I perceive something about what you're thinking here. Why do you do this? We don't believe in his authority. But all of a sudden now he's doing something that's ironically godlike. Something that only God could do. Here we see Jesus give these doubters really a personal revelation of his deity and his authority. Now, in one aspect of this, this is merciful. He's not giving them what they deserve, right? He's not. He's not giving them what they deserve. This is common grace and a little more, if if you think about it. It's ironic grace. You don't believe in me? I'm going to tell you what you're thinking. He reveals to them personally This is something I mean. He reveals to them personally that he is not only omnipotent, the almighty who can forgive sins and raise a paralyzed man up to walk again. He also reveals to them he's omniscient. He knows all things, even the heart of man. He can do only what God can do because he is God. And he reveals that as he peers into the thoughts of their heart. Now, when he did this, when he said this, These men would have immediately, I think, ran in their minds to what they knew from the scriptures. You don't have to turn to these, but let me read these to you. They knew knew 1 Kings 8.39, and it says this, For you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. 1 Chronicles 29.9, The Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Only God knows the heart of the children of mankind. All hearts 
are laid bare before him. He knows every plan, every thought. In, in, in verse 9, from this question he asks them, he moves into this divine act of wisdom in verse 9 that's just absolutely astounding. First, in verse 8, he says, Why do you question these things in your heart? And then he says, Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? In verse 9, Jesus is displaying pure genius, divine genius here. This makes Solomon look like an unwise man when you think about this. Jesus is displaying his authority here by, I think, revealing his all-knowing wisdom by asking this question. Because this question has only one answer. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Is it easier for me to say that? Or is it easier for me to say, pick up your bed, walk? You're healed. Well, they're both impossible with man. Both. With mere man, this is absolutely impossible. Both were impossible for man. That's why this is such a great question. These theologians have no clue what to do with this. He knew, though, they would probably go this route because of their unbelief. They didn't trust in him. He knew the scribes would probably say, well, obviously, it's easier to say that your sins are forgiven. Well, I could go back to Kobe here. I'll pick on him again. Kobe, your sins are forgiven. You guys don't know. Right? You can't see in his heart. That's easier to say. It's easier to say. It's harder to prove. There was no way to actually prove what had transpired internally in this paralytic's heart. That's what they would have chose. They would have chose, okay, it's easier to say this. So what's Jesus do? He chooses the more difficult thing. He chooses the more difficult to show externally that he has the authority to transform a sinner internally. Do you get that? He he chose the external to reveal his obvious authority to do the impossible. If I can do what you consider absolutely impossible to him outwardly, don't you think I could do that to him inwardly? This is amazing wisdom. Both of these acts require divine authority. It can only be done by God. So basically what Jesus has done, he has laid a trap for the theologians. They couldn't get out of it. Now, when we lay traps for people, we do it with malicious motives, even though they may be even biblical traps, right? But I want to win the debate. I want to win the argument. So I lay this trap. You can't get out of it. I've got you. That's not what's going on here. Jesus is showing immense mercy to these men at this moment, these doubters, these scribes who accuse him of blasphemy. He's laying a trap for them, but I want you to notice something. He, he does it with divine authority. He lays this out before them so they can't argue it. But he also does it in order to reveal his divine wisdom and his mercy. Listen, the paralytic served God's purposes here to reveal the authority of Christ. But that's not all. Jesus looks upon that paralyzed man. He looks upon his difficult life and he had mercy for him. And the kind of mercy that only God has for wicked sinners. He shows mercy and grace to him, not just to prove his deity, but simply to show forth his glory, his grace, his mercy. 
In verse 10, Jesus uses this unmistakable revelation to display his omnipotent mercy to paralyzed sinners all the time, not just here. He says, here's why I'm doing this. But in particular, for the scribes, he says, that you may know, epignosko is the Greek term, epignosko, that you may know that the Son of Man has exousia, authority, to forgive sins. I'm going to do this. That's what he's saying. The word epignosko, to know, means so that you would have a thorough knowledge of who I am as the Son of Man. I'm going to show you my exousia. You know what that means? His authority? His exousia means his inherent authority. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to show you thoroughly the sovereign power of God that resides in me. I'm going to show you this personally so that you will know that I am the Son of Man, the title that would have been known to them very very commonly. You know now it's the Son of Man who is forgiving sin here in this sin-cursed world. In Daniel, you don't have to go there. In Daniel 7, there's a revelation, 7, 13, and 14. Well, go ahead and go there. Let me read it to you. That the scribes would have been familiar with and they would have associated what Jesus is doing and this phrase he is using with this revelation here in Daniel 7:13. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting, therefore he's eternal, eternal dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So what he's doing here in Mark 2 is he's saying, look, so that you would know that I am the true Messiah, the anointed one of God sent to bring the good news of God's gospel to you, this is why I'm going to do this. I want you to have a thorough knowledge You're not going to walk out of here going, man, who was that joker? I am the son of man. I am doing what only God can do. Even to this sinner who's in desperate need of mercy. And he would do the same for each one of us. And he has for those who believe. As we read through this text, when you combine the title son of man with the revelation that we see here in this chapter you learn that Jesus is claiming to be the sympathetic, sovereign Savior of sinners. Verse 10, look what it says. It says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says, I'm going to show you, I'm going to prove to you that I have the power that is inherent in heaven residing in me on earth to forgive and to heal those like this man who are not only physically paralyzed, but those who are paralyzed by sin. Listen, when we read these accounts of Jesus defying and fighting against these kinds of situations and describing his deity, his authority and his power and his glory, 
understand there is actual personal context to this. He is caring about the paralyzed sinner. He doesn't simply just pick a random man out. He picks this man out and he sets his love upon him from before the foundation of the world. And through that reveals to those in this congregation that he is ready and eager to heal and to save. When we read the accounts of Jesus and we we want to defend his deity, we want to declare his deity, we should do that. But Jesus was full of mercy also. We need to understand that in the context here. When Jesus saw that paralytic man, he saw what this world of sin has produced. And it broke his heart. He had compassion. He knew how sin has corrupted this earth and how it destroys us physically, personally. And so he interacts personally with this man. What what I'm amazed by is when I read this is, Jesus knew all about what this man truly needed, inside and out. And he displayed his actual care and concern for it here publicly. He's showing this to us even today because he is a sovereign God who is good. And this is something we need to be reminded of when we go through times of difficulty. When we go through times of distress, we know that he can intervene in them. But sometimes he lets us go through them. And in the midst of all that, we need to remember he is sympathetic and sovereign. He is good and he is almighty. If we go through it, it's for a divine purpose. There are eternal blessings that are already promised us in Christ. Nothing that happens on this planet to us will ever take that away. When we go through them, we can look back. Remember, he has promised us something much greater than even if he healed me physically. Listen, I got, I got news for you. If God, if, if God healed you of, of a life-threatening disease, He can do that. Praise Him for it. But you're still going to die one day. But if you have the eternal blessing of God's grace through Christ to you, this dying here on earth is not death to the Christian. It is life eternal that's promised us. Here in this text... I'd say for about 10B down to 12A, we see that Jesus is revealing his sovereign authority, his omnipotent mercy, so that people would see him and praise him, give him honor, but also so he could show compassion to this sinner. Look again at verse 11. It says that he said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. What, what a joy it would have been to hear those words. I mean, he's been forgiven. That's enough. I could be paralyzed the rest of my life. I've been forgiven. Hallelujah. But on top of the grace that he's been given, there is more grace to come. He says to him, get up, go. And just, just the miracle of what's going on here should just overwhelm us. Jesus is showing his authority to, to forgive the sinner eternally. And he's doing it because of his almighty mercy. And that should comfort us today. It should comfort us because though we may not be physically paralyzed, sometimes we're paralyzed by fear. Sometimes we're paralyzed by the situations around us that we, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it. But God has said to us, you are forgiven. 
And if he has done the greater thing for us, will he not care for what we need physically? He will. According to his will, according to his ways. But he certainly has given us more than we deserve either way. Now, thirdly here in Mark 12, let me read verse 12. It says, And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. At at the command of Christ, what's he do? He walks. He follows Christ's command. Now, this is good for him, but this is good for those around him. Because thirdly here in this text, we, we hear the crowd's undeniable reaction to Christ's undeniable testimony here. Look at the reaction in 12b after this man gets up and, and walks, moves out. It says, they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. And were they amazed by the physical healing or by the declaration of his forgiveness? Both. By the revelation of his authority and his mercy. Both. The text actually says they were all beside themselves. That's what the word amazed means here. They were beside themselves. And magnified God, glorified God. In Luke 5, you don't have to turn there, but in Luke 5, the same account is being given to us. And it says that that group was actually filled with awe. A-W-E. Awe. This was in the truest sense of the word, an awesome event, an awe-inspiring event. This was something that truly and undeniably revealed to them that this work that Christ has just done was certainly the work of God himself. It's interesting to me how they immediately attribute what he did to God. They're listening to the words, they're watching what's happening, and they are declaring that God is to be praised for this. They're affirming his testimony. They knew that this was true. They knew that this was worthy of praise. Now, when we read the accounts of people who are blind or, you know, paralyzed, lepers, whatever it is, there is a spiritual lesson for us in all that. We are spiritual lepers. We are spiritually blinded. We are spiritually paralyzed, okay, before Christ. But when we're carried to Christ like this man was, and Christ declares us forgiven, it changes us. But sometimes in our Christian walk, as we grow, we think theologically with knowledge and understanding, sometimes we forget how to respond like these men did at the end of this. We forget the day that he saved us, the day he raised us up to walk in newness of life, as Romans 6 talks about. We forget that. That day, what would you do? You went out and told somebody. You went out rejoicing and praising God, glorifying him, because this is only what God could do to you inside. I remember the day I was converted. I was the week before sitting in county jail in Okmulgee. God saved my soul in that little county jail cell. I was released, and I had to go back to uh, face the charges and, and as, as I'm going, the whole time I'm going to, to face the charges, I'm just, I'm, I'm terrified. I'm terrified. But I had been saved. There was this overwhelming joy and there was this, this human fear in my heart. And as I 
went before the judge, and the judge said, we don't even have a record of you being charged with anything. You're free to go. All right, I was rejoicing, okay? I was happy about that. I was rejoicing over that. But you know what? What amazed me was, in God's sovereign time and pleasure, as I walked out of the county courthouse, I ran into a guy I hadn't seen since the ninth grade, a guy that I had lived beside for years. And the first thing I walk up to him and say is, I've been set free. And he's like, what are you talking about? He has no idea, you know, anything. And I'm like, no, let me tell you, I was saved in that building right over here a week ago. And I'm just rattling. I probably sounded like a madman when I was talking to him. But you remember that moment for you. You remember the day that you were converted. You remember the time. You remember the situation. You remember when you came to that understanding of what God has given you eternally in Christ. And there was great rejoicing in you. How about now? How do you respond to Jesus' testimony? Are you still amazed by his work in your life? Let me ask you it this way. Are you still amazed even in times of difficulty? Are you still in awe of his eternal blessings when you don't feel any of his temporal blessings on your life? If he's healed you eternally by his authority and his mercy like he does here, I want you to know something. Just like he gave mercy to this man to to give him new legs. He knows what we need. And listen, in times of difficulty, he wants to give us what he sees fit that we need. God is not a stingy God. He could have left the man paralyzed and he would have been praised nonetheless. God would have been praised nonetheless. This man had been forgiven. But he wanted to give him healing. He wanted to do that. He wants to give you what you need in times of difficulty because he's with you in them. And he will use them. Sometimes what he gives you in times of difficulty is patience, endurance, perseverance, sanctification. Difficult times come into our lives to burn off the dross of sin that we're clinging to. Trust in our flesh, trust in our understanding, trust in our ways. It burns that off real quick when a bad thing comes into your life. Ronnie and Randy had a difficult situation the other night. And immediately, you're turning to God in faith. You're trusting in God to cling to his promises in times of difficulty. And he wants you to be made more like his son. So even in those times, he's at work in our favor. Christ's work in our lives should still amaze us because he forgave us. He heals us eternally through his work on the cross. And listen, he does all that to do exactly what he does with this man here, this paralyzed man in this text. He forgave us our sins. He healed us eternally in order to raise us up in this world and declare his testimony. Even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of temporal trials, we are to reveal his glory because Jesus has made what is impossible possible for us by his authority and by his mercy being extended to us. I want you to think about something as I kind of pull this together. Think about what's just happened in this narrative, okay? I want you to think about this as a whole to refresh your your heart in times of difficulty this morning. 
in this chapter, in this, this section in particular, we, we are seeing God, a very God, God the Son, Jesus the Messiah, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe, we are seeing that he had determined before creation to prove that he was divine by healing a man made of dirt. How much, how much mercy is in that? How much grace is in that? I mean, are we really worthy of this much attention? The creator and sustainer of the universe intervenes personally to bring healing to us who are made of dust? I think when I read and think about those things, it, it reminds me that Jesus, our God, doesn't just care about the spiritual needs of our life. He cares about us physically. He is with us in the physical difficult times in life. He cares about our souls. He cares about our lives. So much so that even as the creator and sustainer of the universe, he comes near to us. He tabernacled with us and he went to a cross in our place. And he rose to guarantee that we would be with him for eternity. Think about what you're witnessing when you read narratives like this. Think about this. The creator, Jesus, he is exerting the same divine power that he exercised when he spoke the universe into existence when he causes this man to rise up and walk. The infinite God-man dwelling in finite space does the impossible for finite man. Is that not astounding? The infinite one. He does it to display not just his authority, but to display his omnipotent, loving mercy. And he still does that for us. He still cares about us when he saves us and he raises us up to follow Christ. Think about this in light of the reality of how finite you and I are. Paul will get a kick out of this. We're all like specks of dust on a massive planet. And this planet is like a speck of dust in an immense galaxy. And our galaxy is but a speck of dust in a massive universe that is filled with millions of other galaxies that appear to be specks of dust before God's sight. And he created them all. But amazingly, God decided to display his glory and his mercy only in one place, here on earth. We know how he did that. He did that by sending his son to become one of us. To feel our pain, to know what it's like to go through difficulties, to overcome them in our place, to give us victory and hope. Jesus, God the Son, Willingly did this. He he willingly did this to display his glory through extending us mercy. We know he did that at the cross. It's there he brought us forgiveness and he healed every one of us of the greatest disease that we have ever faced, which is our sin. And he healed us eternally. Now listen, this is where this becomes application. That's something to praise him for. That's application. You praise him for this as the congregation does here. But I want you to understand something. Your healing, your spiritual healing was given to you for a divine purpose. That healing is what now empowers you to rise up and walk in a sin-cursed world to be Christ's disciples. 
his ambassadors. He has called us to go into the sin-cursed world and give hope to those who are like us, paralyzed by sin, paralyzed by broken relationships, paralyzed by financial struggles, paralyzed by physical pain and sorrow. He has caused us to be born again in strength. He's raised us up by his grace to go into a dark world and declare there is hope in Christ. That's why he is forgave you. That's why he has healed you spiritually. And listen, I, I pray that as you think about this, that as you think about that in light of your temporal trials, I, I pray that you have much comfort in the midst of these. I pray that the temporal trials of this life will actually turn your hearts to look at the eternal blessings that have been granted to you by Christ's authority and his mercy here on this planet. And I pray that those trials and those blessings do what God intends to do in your heart. That is to cultivate a desire in you like the desire of the men in this narrative had to bring those who are paralyzed by sin to Christ. And to do so by sharing the good news of the revelation of who Christ is, his authority and his mercy. We have to do both. It's good to defend his deity, but it's good to defend him in his fullness. He is a divine creator, sustainer, and merciful savior of sinners. I know that because that's what he's done for me. But for you and I to go out and do what God empowers us to do by his spirit dwelling in us, we have to be like the men in this narrative. We have to be willing to do something. Tyler brought this up in the equipping hour this morning. We have to be willing to do something. We have to be willing to think of the needs of the spiritually paralyzed all around us as more important than our own temporal needs and struggles. How many of us, don't raise your hand, how many of us look at a situation, we see people who are in, in need of the gospel, hurting, but then we go, but I'd go to them, but I, gotta, I, I got some, I don't have enough gas money, I don't have you know, the finances to handle that missionary trip. I, I just, I, I can't do those things. Uh, I'm busy today. I got to go home and mow, right? I got to go check Facebook. I'll go back maybe later when I don't have, you know, uh, things pressing on me like Facebook. We have to be realizing that God has given us eyes to see those who are paralyzed by sin for a purpose. And our temporal needs need to take a, a back seat, when we see these things, I'm going to tell you something. If it takes the back seat, you will be greatly blessed by God. He will bless that effort. You know what? You may not see the person converted. You may not see the person even respond positively to the gospel. But you're honoring Christ's testimony. That is a blessing. You're giving him honor that he deserves when you share the gospel. But to do that, you have to not only think of those who are hurting as more important than yourself. But you must be willing to push through the crowd like these men did. What crowd am I talking about? It's the same crowd that the scribes didn't want to push through. The crowd of pride. You must be willing to humble yourself to go to the needy, to hurt hurting people. You must be willing to get dirty. I remember someone telling me here that there was a guy who was coming, and he was a little shady. He was, he was a shady guy. He was coming to the services. He was dropping in. He was hanging out by the front door. He was drunk a lot of times when he came. 
And I remember a lady telling me, do we really want that kind of people, you know, those kind of people in our services? Isn't that a little dangerous or kind of scary? And I said, that's exactly who we want. I mean, they're coming to us. This is curbside service. I mean, this is great. But it requires getting dirty. You have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to set aside pride. You also have to be willing to push through the fear of men to point sinners to the only one who can truly forgive them, who can truly grant them what they need, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Fear of man is what robs us of joy as Christians. If you want to have joy as a Christian, share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Irregardless of the response, you will have joy. You have been obedient to the master. There is nothing more joyful than that. You will have great joy. The person may have eternal life by God's grace through that message declared to them. Listen, church, that's, that's why we have been raised up. That's why we have been healed. That's why we have been called to be followers of Christ in this sin-cursed world. In the, in the rest of this narrative in chapter 2, you're going to see him call Matthew the least likely of all disciples. He's going to call him to follow him. And listen, if you're a believer today, he's already called you to follow him. Whether you have those, those temporary blessings of God and comfort in this life is irregardless. Because he has called you to be his ambassador in this darkness. Because he's given you his spirit and the promise of eternal blessings in the future. May we all be like the Apostle Paul who was willing to die to himself, physically and spiritually, to be a servant of Christ. Let's pray that that would be the case. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abundance of grace that you have given us, the eternal blessings you have enriched us with, that help us to get through the temporal struggles in life. Lord, we pray that we would cling to your revelation, trust in Christ as we grow in the knowledge and wisdom that you have revealed to us in your word. Lord, turn our minds and our hearts always back to the truth in spite of our circumstances. Help us to focus upon what you have saved us from and what you have saved us for so that we could give Christ the praise he deserves, not only in heaven, but here on earth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.